Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Rated R for Reviewed with me, Edward James Beasley. Thank you for your patience as I realise that it has been slightly over a week since the last episode, but perhaps I'm still thinking in a rather outdated mindset of broadcast radio and actually timing isn't everything in the world of podcasts. But uh, hey, I'm still new to the game. This week we'll see a triple film review, simmer down folks. First up will be the latest instalment in the Toy Story franchise. Number four sees the return of Woody, Buzz and the gang along with some new characters and an interesting revival of some support ones in more central roles. Next up we'll be taking a tour of sorts around the home nations. Firstly, Gwen is a grim gothic period drama with a sprinkling of dark horror vibes. Maxine Peake and Eleanor Worthington-Cox star as mother and daughter trying to hold down their farm in the mountains of North Wales while the father of the home is away at war and the spectre of industrial revolution looms threatening to take their home and livelihoods away from them. Lastly, Only You is a romantic drama set in Glasgow and charts the relationship between Eleanor and Jake from their serendipitous meeting during a taxi share on New Year's Eve through falling in love and trying to start a family and the struggles that ensue. We'll also be taking a look at the latest trailers in cinemas and a little feedback on the promise of those. So first up, we have Toy Story 4. Uh, apologies, folks, as this one has been out in the cinemas for a few weeks now, so this may be slightly old news. But for those of you who haven't yet seen it or would like to compare notes, the latest film in the series follows on from the events of Toy Story 3, in which the toys have been handed down from Andy to his younger sister Molly. The gang, especially Woody, is still trying to find their place, and when Molly starts kindergarten, Woody sees his chance to make a real difference in her life. During her first day at kindergarten, with the unseen helping hand of Woody, Molly creates Forky, a brand new toy comprising of a spork, a pipe cleaner, and some googly eyes. The family then takes an RV road trip, during the trip, Woody has to continually save the trash-minded Forky from himself, and the pair wind up in a small-town vintage store and fall foul of Gabby Gabby, an antique doll with a defective voice box who will do anything to be perfect enough to have a kid of her own. Uh, and by kid, we mean an owner. Oh, and did I mention Gabby Gabby's army of super-creepy ventriloquist dummy henchmen? Well, Woody escapes, and it's up to him and an old acquaintance to save Forky and the rest of the gang to save them both. So Toy Story 4 follows on from Toy Story 3, which actually came out in 2010, so it's nearly a decade since the last iteration. And actually, interestingly, I'd kind of forgotten that Toy Story came out in 1995, meaning that it's 24 years old. As the first Pixar film, we've seen the studio, which is a section of Disney, grow from strength to strength and taking many, many millions of dollars in box office revenue. However, it's interesting that they're coming back to the Toy Story franchise, and quite nice that these sequel iterations have taken such a long gap between them. Of the four films, I've only seen number three once, but it did seem like a conclusion to me, so it's interesting that they've come back for a fourth, and I was a little bit sceptical coming into this as I thought that it might be of a cynical cash cow rather than adding anything to the actual overall story. However, I was pleasantly surprised. 
Interestingly, all three of the films I'll be reviewing this week are directorial debuts. Josh Cooley has worked in various art and animation departments within Pixar, as well as voicing a number of characters, but this is his first time in the director's chair. Um, I assume animation directors get a chair, but that's something that's a little bit of an unknown job, and I don't think directors of animated films tend to get the same level of kudos as their live-action counterparts, maybe unfairly. The first thing that Pixar fans will notice about Toy Story 4 is that there's no short film to begin with. This is something that I think has been on the beginning of every Pixar film since Toy Story, uh, normally a kind of 5-10 to minute animated short. Some of these have been really quite enjoyable and possibly even more enjoyable than the feature films that followed them. But interestingly, there is none this time. What there is, is a prologue. And this is set somewhere between Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3. In this, the toys are initially seen trying to rescue a toy truck that's been left out overnight and may fall foul of a storm drain. And we find out what happened to Bo Peep, who was conspicuously absent in the events of Toy Story 3. It turns out that at some point between Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3, Bo Peep and her lamp were given away, as Molly no longer needed them. There's an emotional goodbye between Woody and Bo Peep, as he's left having to decide between travelling with her or staying behind with Andy. A decision of which, of course, we know the outcome, and Woody stays with the rest of the gang, while Bo is taken away in a cardboard box with other bric-a-brac. And the concepts of growing up and moving on are taken to a, a whole new level in Toy Story 4. Again, as has happened in the previous films, they've added more new characters into this, two of which most notably are Ducky and Bunny, a pair of plush toys who are sewn together, and a voice by comedy duo Keenan-Michael Kay and Jordan Peele. Ducky and Bunny are fairground prizes who encounter Buzz Lightyear as he tries to set off to find Woody and Forky, but is captured by a fairground attendant and put on display as a prize to be won in a fairground game. Unlike Gabby Gabby, Ducky and Bunny don't really serve the plot of the film uh, in as much as they are quite a good comedy vessel, and probably some of the biggest laughs in the film do come from them, if not out and out the biggest laughs in the film by probably a a fairly long way, and if you've seen it, you'll you'll know which bits I mean. Uh, One of the other new characters is Duke Kaboom, who's a kind of Canadian toy version of Evil Knievel, and he's voiced by Keanu Reeves but he services the plot a little bit more in terms of helping Woody and the others. I thought these characters were equally uh, as fun. I think one nice thing about the Toy Story franchise, and it's probably something that Pixar on the whole has done really well, it is tended to avoid having lots of big-name actors in roles, or at least when they have got fairly big-name actors like Keanu Reeves doing a voice, It's not just done for the purposes of going, oh yeah, that's Keanu Reeves right there, or that's another insert famous A-list star there. Actually, Keanu Reeves' voice is not particularly obvious. He's clearly playing a character within the film, which I quite liked. And in with the new characters, as I said, what's particularly nice about this film is there's a a reappearance of an old character, uh, specifically Bo, and we see how she's changed and evolved from the uh, prologue of the film through to where she is now and and how the character has completely changed due to circumstance and what it means to be a, a lone toy, a toy without a kid, and how that's fundamentally different from everything that we've seen in the franchise to this point. And that kind of brings us on to, I think, where Toy Story 4 really differs from the previous films. And that's really in its kind of message 
and the character tropes because in the previous films it, it's always been a case that the toys want to be there for their kid for their owner that it's their duty and nothing would give them more pleasure than to kind of honor the duty of belonging to a specific kid and being there for that kid through their childhood and I guess when that kid grows up as we've seen that they then belong to another kid but this challenges the expectation and in this film we kind of see that toys might have their own wants and their own desires that might exist outside of just belonging to a kid that there might be more to their lives than has been previously alluded to and I I like that in Toy Story 3 we saw what it was like for Andy to grow up and then the kind of transience of the toys lives as a result of that this time we're flipping it on its head and seeing what the transience of the toys lives may be and how they may go on to do different things and actually and have a more not self-centered life but a life in which they can explore their own wants and desires it's kind of interesting it flips back on us in terms of growing up and becoming adults and all those scary things that go along with it it challenges the expectation of belonging which is something that the toys are supposed to have up until that point but now we see them growing up and potentially moving on and letting go and, and growing in and of themselves and we see real character development there's a few crying moments in the film i mean i didn't personally shed a tear i don't cry in films all that often uh, my partner who went to see the film with me she definitely cried and I, I think she said there were three spots uh, one in the prologue and i think there's one again sort of towards the end uh, I, th- I think the tearjerker moments are pretty obvious but it's definitely predicted that pixar films will have those tearjerker moments and definitely with the toy story franchise we've got all of these established characters that we've that we've come to care about over the nigh on quarter century that they've existed the film is really good fun i think it fits into the series nicely and if you like the preceding toy story films you will like this they've not deviated too much from anything they've stayed true to the characters the voices are all done excellently again and the animation is predictably great so there's no reason i don't think why you wouldn't like this it probably won't come up as your favorite in the franchise i'm guessing i don't think it was mine although i tended to find that really all four of the films have hit a reasonably consistent plateau of being pretty good Next up is Gwen. Now, this is a Victorian Gothic drama. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. Gwen is set in the mountains of northern Wales, and we follow the struggles of Ellen, played by Maxine Peake, and her daughters, the titular Gwen and Mary. The father of the family is away at war, and the remaining three struggles are worsened as illness grips Ellen, and the farm is struck by a series of disasters, leaving Gwen wondering whether this is misfortune, the wrath of God, or a conspiracy of man, orchestrated by Mr Wynne, the owner of the local slate mine that has driven out most of the local farmer families. And again, this is another debut feature film, this time from director William McGregor. This is one that I didn't know too much about going into. I hadn't seen a trailer for it. It merely kind of popped up at the cinema and I thought looked vaguely interesting. It's a fairly short film. Not that that should command a decision to go and see it, but all the same, uh, it was something that I could slot into my day fairly easily. Uh, The opening shots are of a, a sort of cloudy, misty Welsh mountainside. I really like the cinematography it manages to sort of portray this element of beauty because obviously the scenery is very attractive but 
to keep it grey and even though it's wide open spaces to kind of almost these mountains surrounding you and the and the fog and low cloud kind of curling in and almost very constricting even though it's a wide open space so I I really like that and I think that really sets the the scene of the film very quickly and we really get a sense of location I would almost say that it's beauty marred with death and greyness and sort of death almost stalks this picture you get the idea that this was an area in the north of Wales that at one time would have been abundant in livestock and abundant in agriculture in general and there were lots of families of farmers and the industrial revolution is what has come in and changed this area and it's brought this specter of death with it as mentioned the mountain has been turned largely into a slate mine which is owned by one entrepreneurial landowner who's gone in and aggressively purchased up the land from these families of farmers and sent them on their way I guess to be workers in whatever factory or mine possibly his and what's left has killed the land and there's very much this sense of unpleasantness in the film and that it's odd to say but the film almost tastes bad it almost smells bad if that makes sense It sets up a scene that I would have really thought would conjure that of a horror film in the sense that you do almost expect something supernatural to occur. You expect ghosts or spirits or, you know, the spectral return of someone from war to to come in and do away with the family. But it's more complex than that. But it is at the same time, it, it is almost a horror film, but not one with any supernatural elements to it. And there are some initial examples of this when, in an early scene, Gwyn is asleep at night and she gets a sense that there's someone or something walking around outside and then various things happen afterwards and their livestock goes missing or is murdered or their eggs are ruined by rats or their potatoes die suddenly and there's this very much this sort of feeling of death taking over them. As explained in the plot, there's this concept of the three remaining at home in this foggy wilderness while their father is away, and that's perhaps seen as the the source of their problems, and the idea being that they can't leave this farmland, they can't sell it to this landowner, because it has to be ready for when the father of the household returns from war. Interestingly, it's never specified which war he's gone to, and it's not entirely specified when this film is set, other than being, if not the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, then I guess when the Industrial Revolution was hitting that part of North Wales. So mid-19th century, I'm guessing. It might be the Crimean War that he's gone to. It's, It's never explained, and I guess it's not particularly important. It doesn't really matter to them. It's more that just he's gone away, and that they're left vulnerable because of this but that they're having to put up a very brave front and fight to maintain what's theirs poverty is is absolutely demonstrated as well by these surroundings there's some interesting things in the film one thing that uh, happens very early on which i think demonstrates the sort of level of poverty here is that maxim peak's character ellen and then her daughter gwen both do the same thing where they prick their finger with a, a needle and then with the blood use it to dab on their cheeks as a kind of rouge and I googled this and I could find nothing about it when I begin using blood as rouge it didn't return any results I don't know if this is something that was commonly done or commonly used or or an example of extreme poverty but the women in this household are both seen 
to do this and it's a rather dramatic and unpleasant illustration of how impoverished they are and how their situation seems to uh, have become very very bad but that they're also still trying to put on an appearance. I think horror was something that I definitely didn't expect from this film from the outset of just getting a synopsis of the plot and it's very very welcome and I, I would say I struggle to think of another film that treads the line of horror as this film does without having a supernatural menace, without actually being a horror film. But really, actually, that the horror is man and what man is capable of and what man's greed will do to communities, to the environment, to landscapes, to the people it affects. And that's really clever. And I think there are some really jumpy moments in this film. And I I will, without spoiling anything, there is an element of dreams coming into the um, narrative of the film. But there are definitely a few points that were really quite jumpy or quite menacing and scary in this very dimly lit cottage that they have. So I would say that the camera work and the lighting really helps to build this mood and uh, I I thought was was very, very effective to use those horror tropes in this film to create something that I I think is rather unique. The central performances are also really strong. Uh, Maxine Peake is very good. Uh, She seems to be frequently cast in this type of role where she's put upon, where she's stressed and everything's going wrong for her. It kind of reminded me of her performance in the Black Mirror episode where she's on the run from these robotic dog-like killing machines in this sort of post-apocalyptic wilderness. Also, Eleanor Worthington-Cox, who plays Gwen, uh, is really engaging in the role. And between the two of them, they really carry 90% of the performances in this. Everyone else in the film is quite a small support role and it's these two who really carry it through and that's uh, very engaging performances and the dynamics between them and the sort of mother-daughter dynamic is then twisted so it goes from being one of protection and comfort to fear and, and unknown and that's sort of explored as the film goes on. I think that juxtaposition makes the film very unnerving and gives a real sort of sense of menace to the entire thing. It's not necessarily an easy watch and there are certain scenes in the film that might be quite disturbing to some audience members. Uh, The ending is particularly, I would say, unpleasant. It's not necessarily graphic, but psychologically I think it's, it's quite disturbing. I'm kind of surprised that the film only received a 15 certificate and not an an 18 one on that basis. But even though it's not necessarily an easy watch, I think it's really gripping. And if you like good horror films, and if you like things with strong central performances in these films where there's an element of isolation, not necessarily happy films, but very, very engaging drama, then I would absolutely recommend it. Uh, Lastly this week is Only You, and this is a third directorial feature debut, this time from Harry Wootliffe. Only You is a detailed examination of a relationship between the film's protagonists, Eleanor, who's a professional in her mid-thirties, and Jake, a PhD student in his mid-twenties. We see the beginnings of their relationship as they meet on New Year's Eve and share a taxi ride, through their whirlwind romance into a deepening relationship as they fall in love, move in together and try to start a family. When their ideals prove not to be as simple as they had hoped, their relationship is put under huge stress as they struggle with the realities of life. So this is actually a first on the podcast. So this is the first film that I have seen that I have also reviewed a trailer for in last week's episode. 
And I think, I, unfortunately, as I mentioned, the trailer really didn't give much of an indication as to what the film was about, other than the fact that we're following these two protagonists in a relationship that seems uh, quite intense. It didn't really give much of a feel as to what the struggles of the couple would turn out to be and, and how their relationship would change or, or what events they may face. So I can't really do much of a comparison, unfortunately. The start of the film sees these two meet and we get a little kind of insight into Eleanor's life before this happens uh, as she's uh, at a New Year's Eve party with friends. But then the narrative sees the relationship take very quick leaps and bounds. So there's a slight oddness to their initial hookup that they meet where he's apparently sober and she's not because he's been DJing and she's been at a party on New Year's Eve. Then we cut to her flat but he's gone back with her even though she told him that she was fine going back home on her own. Then we cut forward quite quickly and they're in a relationship and then we cut forward again and very quickly in the film they've they've moved in together. And there's definitely supposed to be an element that this relationship has moved very quickly, but for us at the beginning of the film, it's kind of like pow, 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 which, yeah, is, is fine. You just kind of take it as a ride. And then the first thing that happens is this age gap between them and their, their age is kind of dropped into the film earlier on and she's lied about her age that she's effectively nearly a decade older than him but he doesn't know this until they've been dating for a while and she sort of tells him oh, okay maybe if I'm not 29 what if I'm actually 30 okay what if I'm 31 etc etc and initially you kind of get the feeling this represents a, a, an intrinsic insecurity for her that she thinks potentially I guess that he's gonna run off with somebody younger or closer in age to him or younger than him even and that she'll be discarded as being too old which I guess is perhaps a, a common anxiety in those sorts of areas and maybe more that dynamic of her being older than him that there might be a, a question of biological clocks ticking etc. Now his retort to this is that the age gap doesn't bother him and that he loves her and we carry on but what's interesting is that even though he's the one who's finishing a PhD and he's in his 20s, he's the one who suggests that they should perhaps start a family. And this is where the plot starts to move on and we start to get an inkling of the troubles that the two will face as starting a family proves to be very biologically difficult for them. The couple who are initially unable to get pregnant then start to seek medical aid and things like IVF come into the mix. And it's at this point that it really starts to create a rift between them as the desire to start a family and get pregnant becomes all-encompassing. And then every time that they fail, it knocks them down so much harder and the rest of their lives fall away as everything becomes about trying to start a family. The film is filmed and set in Glasgow and it's a city I know fairly well. There's definitely quite a few areas that I recognise. I think it's got a good sense of the location without having to play up and constantly show stock footage or have them stand next to obvious monuments. It's more just a sense of it feeling like an actual place. What I found interesting about this film from a critical perspective is that the film is completely about this relationship. And I found myself only really judging it on the characters the performances and then actually the relationship itself that these two characters have and I found myself even thinking about it more in terms of a relationship as if it were a real relationship rather than judging the film on the merits of say its cinematography of its pacing of its narrative of its dialogue even it's more just that I was 
thinking about these two in terms of their relationship, which I'm sure was intentional. And as such, the film works really well on that front. It's it's not a showy film. It's not technically trying to break any new ground. It is a human piece about these two people. And the central performances are really, really strong. And the dialogue I found was really, really believable to the point that I, I just kind of forgot that I was watching a film, if that makes sense. I think it's definitely a film that requires an experience of relationships from the viewer's perspective. I think if I showed this film to a bunch of 16-year-olds, they probably wouldn't get that much out of it. But I think it's that shared experience that's required. And there was definitely so much about this that I sort of pulled from my own experience in relationships that I have and have had to things that seem familiar and some things that seem familiar to me that were pleasant and some things that seem familiar to me that were deeply unpleasant and that I would find to be dysfunctional or definitely reminded me of things that were dysfunctional in previous relationships that I've had. And I think that's an important element of the film that it holds a mirror up and gives you that empathy with the characters and presents very, very real situations it's more in the detail of small conversations that they have at night or silly things that they do rather than big sweeping gestures or or even arguments and the tone of arguments and the kinds of ways people behave in arguments or avoid arguments or passive aggressive etc rather than just having these are key points It, it tells a story more through the little details that I think we end up empathizing more with because even if the exact situation isn't something we've lived through. There's definitely elements of the communication and elements of the relationship and the dynamic that, as people, we probably experienced. So as said, children and the concept of family is a really big element of this film. And I guess that was kind of interesting for me because that was one element that I, not say I didn't empathise with, but perhaps my own experience didn't correlate with. As I said, the character of Eleanor is in her mid-30s. She's seeing all of her friends settle down, have kids, and she ends up feeling left behind, like she doesn't have that experience that, at least seemingly to her, everybody else is having. And that's something that I didn't personally relate to as much, and I wonder if that's maybe an age thing, although I'm not much younger than her character. I am a man, so that might make a difference. Um, The other thing, I wonder if it's a little to do with location. That is definitely not my experience of people of around that age in London. I guess perhaps socially because the sheer cost of living means that none of us are really thinking about having children. Um, Possibly, I think this I guess goes a little bit outside of reviewing the film but just again as I said this film was more about a reflection on this relationship and then empathising with it from my own perspective and that was one element I didn't really empathise with and didn't seem to be such a kind of thinking that people have now, but I guess maybe they do, and that's just not my own experience. And what was very interesting, although I don't personally have any experience with the struggles of of trying to have a family, I don't have a family in terms of children, and I've I've never tried to have one uh, to this point in my life, so that wasn't something I was personally familiar with. But it was an interesting that as they struggle more and more and go to sort of greater lengths to try and conceive a child, There's this notion of them wasting their lives trying to do that if it becomes um, impossible or at least highly improbable that they will become pregnant and this sense that it becomes all-encompassing. And I guess that's a difficult situation to be faced with, especially if biologically the problem only affects one of the two of them. And I think, again, you would tend to put yourself in that position and wonder how 
you as a viewer of the film would react in that situation. And whether or not, if it is a pursuit of a goal that's highly unlikely and highly improbable and very difficult, whether that is wasting one's life. It doesn't really answer the questions, it more just raises them. And I guess as well, questions about the motivations of love. I went to an interesting talk a while ago run by the School of Life in London um, with the Belgian psychotherapist Esther Perel, who writes quite a lot about relationships and and does relationship counselling and has quite an interesting podcast. One of the interesting takeaways from that was the concept that now as humans in this time and in the West anyway, and this is something that's relatively new, as has maybe existed for 50, 60 years at most, is the idea that we no longer have to stay in relationships, whereas in the past, people for the most part wouldn't have had the choice to stay in a relationship or not. Now we we do have that choice generally. And for most of us, if we don't want to be in a relationship, we don't have to be. And that filtered back to me a bit with this film. And the idea of relationships, if they're difficult, are they something that we should pursue? And that's something that's been challenged a bit more in recent years, I think. I think generally in the past, the concept was that, you know, love was always worth fighting for and relationships should be worked on and they should be fixed if things become difficult. Whereas now there's a school of thought that's more prominent that says if a relationship's hard, then you shouldn't be in that relationship. And that was something that flashed up in my mind with this film in the concept of you have this relationship that is hard that they want something that they biologically almost certainly cannot have and therefore should that relationship be worked on should it be fixed should these problems be overcome should these things that they want be sacrificed for that relationship or if that relationship is difficult and they've broken down to constantly arguing and fighting and being unhappy should they walk away from that relationship And I don't know quite where I stand on that front. I think a lot of people have very polar views of it. And I guess the truth is maybe somewhat more subjective and more in the middle. But it definitely got me thinking, which I guess brings about my whole argument that this film is really about these two characters, about this relationship. And all my review has basically been is judging the merits of this human interaction and what I saw and what I took away and what I saw about myself and my experiences in it and some broader reflections on human relationships as a whole. And I think that was almost certainly what was intended by writer-director Harry Wootliffe. As I said, this is not a flashy film. It is just a very human drama and I think it's one that works really well for what it is. I thought the two lead performances were fantastic. Lea Costa plays Eleanor and you might remember her from Victoria, the one-shot film set in Berlin, which is a kind of crime heist film, which is all done in one continuous take incredibly effectively. And that was another great performance, although a very, very different film. This is a really human portrayal and I just found the character to be absolutely believable and I really didn't question any aspect of the performance at all. Uh, Similarly for Josh O'Connor who played Jake, I thought I'd recognised him. He starred in a film called God's Own Country which came out last year which was quite an interesting drama although somewhat more complicated and bleaker than this. I think he's starred in a few TV shows as well such as The Crown and had a role in Peaky Blinders but overall not huge big-name stars, which really helps set our focus that we're not watching two actors, we're watching two people, and they absolutely were the characters. Again, the support cast, no one I recognise, but some really great 
believable performances. And again, such a, a really kind of believable naturalism to the entire film. I would definitely recommend it. So there we go, three reviews and three recommendations for three very different films, all from directors making their feature directorial debut. The trailers this week. So firstly, Pain and Glory is Pedro Moldovar's new film starring Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz. My kind of takes on Moldovar's films of the past, some I've really liked, some I really haven't enjoyed as much as I perhaps feel that I should have. A lot of his films are they're very critically acclaimed and I think a lot of the time I'd seen them quite a while after release and I'd perhaps been a little bit underwhelmed as to what I thought I should expect from them and there was a period when I didn't get particularly excited about seeing his films. I think it wasn't until I saw The Skin I Live In that I re-evaluated him as a director as uh, that is I mean an incredibly disturbing perhaps shocking film but um, I thought immensely powerful uh, and and just fantastic storytelling and uh, again this is him teaming up with Antonio Banderas who I always think is no matter the film is generally engaging and very watchable. In this film, Banderas plays a film director who, reflecting on the choices he's made in life as past and present, come crashing down around him. I'm not sure if this is autobiographical. I assume it must be to some degree, but we'll perhaps find out a little bit more when watching it. Received some very good reviews generally, so looks like it might be uh, well worth a watch. Animals is the next film. This is a Dublin-set comedy drama. Stars Holiday Granger and Alia Sawcat, who you may remember from Arrested Development. It's based on a novel by writer Emma Jane Unsworth, and she's written the screenplay for the film herself. It seems to be a bit of a a coming-of-age drama, a friendship between two girls, one of whom is a Dublin native, played by Holiday Granger. Uh, the other is uh, an American expat, and how their friendship develops as one of them enters a relationship. You don't get too much in the trailer, which I quite like. It kind of gives a bit of a sense of the characters, but I'm not too sure in which direction it goes. It seems like it's going to be quite a kind of acidic comedy value to it. I'm hoping it doesn't go more in the realm of being very self-satisfied, but some of the reviews I've read seem to suggest it might do. But on the whole, the average seems to be pretty decent in terms of critical response. Photograph is the latest film from the director of The Lunchbox, Ritesh Batra. It follows a relationship between a struggling street photographer in Mumbai, who is pressured to marry by his grandmother, and he convinces a shy stranger to pose as his fiancée. And then, of course, the pair develop a connection that transforms their lives in ways that they did not expect. And I'll be honest, I didn't necessarily take away that as being the plot from the trailer. Uh, I think they probably could have done a better job of editing it together. I didn't necessarily get that the relationship was not, at least initially, genuine and was just there to appease the uh, character's grandmother. So, Not necessarily giving a great thumbs up for the trailer. Perhaps the film is actually better than the trailer might suggest. It's had decent reviews, if not outstanding. And lastly, The Chambermaid. This is a Mexican feature set in a high-end hotel in Mexico City. We follow the exploits of a maid who works an entire floor within this expensive hotel. It's hard to gain much of an idea of what the plot to the film actually is, just more that we're sort of seeing the general exploits of her life. And it seems like it might be quite a charming and and have its own sort of uh, amusing elements to it. It's had very good reviews, so I'll definitely check it out. uh, And we'll see how the trailer compares to the actual film itself. 
So that's all for this week, folks. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Next week, we'll have some new reviews for you. I can't promise what the second film will be, but definitely one of the reviews will be of Jim Jarmusch's new zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die. And I did think I was going to be able to review it this week, but unfortunately wasn't able to see it. And there'll be at least one other film review for you as well. I've been Edward James Beasley, this has been Rated R4 Reviewed, and we'll catch you next week.